Good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, maybe not the most familiar book to many of us, but if you go to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and then turn back one book, you'll find the book of Jude. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the chair there in front of you. Last week, Corey talked about some of the foundational privileges and responsibilities we have as the church, not just our church, but every church. Things like gathering weekly for worship, what we're doing this morning, being committed to the teaching and preaching of Scripture, taking the Lord's Supper together, discipling one another, spreading the gospel here and around the world. This morning, I want to zero in on one of the things that he touched on, and it's a responsibility that we have as a church, and Christ Church has had throughout the ages, to guard and preserve the gospel, to guard and preserve the gospel. This is really at the heart of this tiny letter that we know of as the book of Jude. Likely one of the most unfamiliar books in the New Testament for many of us, but it's a book I think we need to hear. It's a book that calls us as a church to guard the message of the gospel, particularly in light of the presence of false teachers and false teaching. You know, when the subject turns to false teachers and false teaching, Scripture seems to take a different tone, if you will. Right, And we see this even in the ministry of Jesus. He was patient with his disciples. We saw that in the book of Mark. He was compassionate towards the crowds, even merciful towards his enemies. But when it came to false teachers, his demeanor seemed to change. Some of his strongest words were reserved for those who would lead God's people astray. This is a reminder for us that false teaching cannot be accepted or ignored in the church. When it comes to the gospel, the stakes are just too high. God's glory is too important and eternity is at stake. So with that in mind, we come to the message of the book of Jude, Again, one of the shortest books in the New Testament, but one we cannot ignore. And my guess is as we read this book, we're going to cover it in its entirety. I realize the Gospel of Mark took us months and months. I'm going to try and one-up everybody and do an entire book right in one sitting, but to my advantage, it's only 25 verses. So we should be able to handle this in a few hours. So as we read this, there are some difficult phrases and allusions in the book of Jude. Okay, I hope to be able to answer some of those questions, probably won't get to all of them. However, I think the overall point that Jude is making and the thing he wants us to see is actually pretty clear. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Jude. Jude writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit." But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Crystal clear, right? No questions, right? I'm sure there are plenty of questions. That came to your mind again, a lot of these allusions and references throughout the book of Jude are uh, not always familiar to us, but hopefully we'll address at least some of them. But more than that, I want us to get the overall point here that Jude is driving at in this book. All right, let's begin just by getting our bearings a little bit. Okay, we learn in verse one, I've already said that Jude here is the author Okay, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Okay, this is not James, the brother of John, one of the apostles. This is the James mentioned most likely in Matthew 13 and Galatians 1 as one of the siblings of Jesus. Okay, that would make Jude, by the way, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, we refer to him as the half-brother. They had the same mother, but not the same earthly father. Right? Jesus' birth came about by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. Okay, so we've got a, a sibling of Jesus writing this letter. But interestingly enough, Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. I've got a brother that I love and respect and I look up to in many ways, even though he's younger. I never refer to myself as his servant. Okay, Jude is in a unique situation here. Okay, it's likely that after Christ's resurrection, he had come to place his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. You have his half-brother here confessing him as Lord, calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a brother of James, but I'm a servant 
of Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly who Jude was writing to here. He doesn't name a specific person or church, but in all likelihood it was to a specific church or group of churches. But notice here at the end of verse 1, notice how he describes the Christians he's writing to. And these things apply to us as well. First, he says, to those who are called. And he's talking about God's call to salvation when the Spirit draws us to faith in Jesus. Then he refers to us as beloved in God the Father. Right? What a beautiful description of a Christian. The Father adopts us into his spiritual family through Jesus Christ and we are beloved. Right? And then third, he says we are kept for Jesus Christ. Right? So if you're a Christian, that's a pretty encouraging description to hear, particularly in light of the dangers of false teaching that these churches were under. You are called, beloved, and kept. So in this letter where we hear some of these stern cautions and warnings, remember God is cautioning His people in love. They are beloved, called, and kept. Okay, so with that background, let's look then at the heart of this letter. I think we could divide the book of Jude into two main calls. Okay, I'm putting it, putting it all under two main calls. First, a call to contend for the faith. A call to contend for the faith. And then second, a call to persevere in the faith. Call to contend and a call to persevere. And those are both closely related. So let's look at this call to contend, okay? Beginning in verse three. And really, if you want to know the book of Jude, verses three and four are really the entire book in a nutshell. Okay, that, that's really the gist of the whole book right there. Verses 3 and 4. Jude begins in verse 3 saying, Beloved, although I, was ve- although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's as if Jude had another letter in mind originally. He wanted to write to them about the salvation that they shared in Christ. But he said, there is something else that I couldn't ignore. So I needed to change course a little and write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Strive to uphold the truthfulness and integrity of the gospel. Notice he says too, this faith was once for all delivered. Right? It's not something we came up with. It's not something we can twist or manipulate to meet our own preferences. The message of the gospel is not a lump of clay that we can just form however we'd like. You might think of it like this. The gospel, the faith that's been delivered to us is like having a beautiful, rare painting that you inherit from your grandparents and they leave you a note saying you can keep it and enjoy it And pass it along as long as you don't alter it in any way. Right? If you receive that, right, you wouldn't run home and pull out a paintbrush and start adding things to it. You wouldn't pull out a rag and try and wipe things away. You would ruin it. You couldn't enjoy it and then you couldn't pass it along to others. That's what it's like when we receive the message of the gospel. It's been delivered to us once and for all, not so we can change it. Or manipulate it so that we can enjoy it, benefit from it, and then pass it along to the next generation. It's not ours to change, nor would we want to. What makes this so pressing is what Jude mentions in verse 4. And this is what launches him into the rest of the letter. He describes certain people, he says, who have crept in unnoticed. Right, almost certainly false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And in verse 4, Jude gives us a brief description of these men. And he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking this more. But look just in verse 4 alone. These men, and he doesn't name them specifically, he says were designated for condemnation. We'll see more on that in a second. He calls them ungodly people. And he says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. 
Right? We're not given specifics, but in some way they were taking the grace that God offers in the gospel and twisting it so they could indulge in immorality, likely sexual immorality, given what he says here. Then to top it all off, he says they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I don't think he means by that that they just said, no, Jesus isn't Lord or he's not truly the son of God. If that were the case, we would expect a different letter from Jude. When he says they deny Jesus, I think he means by the way that they live, they are essentially denying his lordship. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? But the ones who do the will of my Father, those are the ones who truly know me as Lord. I think that's what we're dealing with here with these false teachers. They may have even said he was Lord, but they were living in a completely different way. And this is a good reminder here that faith, true biblical faith, receives Jesus as both Savior and Lord. We don't choose one or the other. When we become Christians, we actually want to live for Jesus. That's, that's a sign that the Spirit has truly worked in our hearts, that we now want to live for Him. We gladly turn from our sin and put our trust in Christ alone. And if you haven't done that this morning, we would love to talk with you further about that. What it means to put your trust in the one who we've been singing about, who this passage, this book is all about, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for sinners. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to believe the true gospel and not the false gospel that is on offer in so many places. But these false teachers, somehow, in some way, they are twisting God's grace and denying Christ's lordship by their behavior. You can see then why Jude would spend so much time talking about them and warning the church. Imagine people like this getting into leadership in the church, using God's grace and the gospel as an excuse then to indulge their own sinful desires. Jude does not pull any punches here. Jesus warns in Matthew 7, again, of false prophets. You remember this? Who will come to you in what kind of clothing? Right? Sheep's clothing. Right? You won't even notice it. Right? But he says, Jesus says, inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Right? Thanks be to God that he loves us too much to let us be deceived. He wants us to stay on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. Right? And we should be concerned with this for others in the church as well. This is not just about us. Right? Maybe you won't be deceived, but what about the person in the row in front of you? What about the family that sits behind you? Right? You may be smart enough to figure some of this stuff out. Maybe you know enough scripture, but maybe they're getting deceived. What about our youth in this church? Do we care enough about the gospel we've been given to uphold it, to guard it, to preserve it? What about our co-workers who don't know Christ? Do we care enough for them to make sure that we get this gospel accurate? Right? Most importantly, of course, we contend for the faith because we long for God to receive the glory that he is due. When the gospel is twisted... His name is smeared, both in the church and in the world. Right? That's why we don't have the option of being indifferent to false teaching or to false teachers. Right? So in order for us to contend for the faith well, I want us to look at what Jude tells us about these false teachers. Okay? This, this book here is certainly not all the Bible has to say about false teachers. Right? In other books of the Bible, for instance, in Galatians... Paul deals with certain forms of false teaching, even though he doesn't specifically call it that. But he he deals with perversions of the gospel in other ways. So this is not all the New Testament has to say. But Jude gives us a pretty good picture here of false teachers specifically. And he doesn't get into, again, he doesn't get into the specifics of what they're teaching. But he has in mind more about their character, 
Okay, both things are important, the message and the character of those who teach. Jude is really going to focus in here on their character. So with that in mind, I want to point out in the rest of this point here, eight things for us to know about false teachers. Okay, eight things for us to know about false teachers. You could add to this list if we went to other books of the Bible. Right, and these are sprinkled throughout the book of Jude. Right, so it's going to be a little different than normal. I'm going to throw out these characteristics with uh, verse numbers, but it doesn't always follow right in order through the book. But thankfully, this book is only a page or two in your Bible, so you should be able to flip back and forth, okay, so we don't get lost. But Jude doesn't just lay them out neatly in a list. He keeps coming back over and over to various characteristics. You probably noticed that. So let's look here at eight things we need to know, excuse me, in order to contend for the faith. Right. And and just by way of uh, noting this here, not all of these eight things are true of every false teacher. Okay, that's not that's not the point of this. But these are things we need to keep on our radar. Okay, so first, the first thing to notice about them is their stealth. Okay, their stealth. Did you notice in verse four, he says that they crept in unnoticed. Unnoticed in verse four. Then in verse 12, he calls them hidden reefs. Okay, a reef is like a rock or a group of rocks that lie below the surface. Right? They're dangerous for ships because ships don't see them when they glide past. Right? It can end up sinking the ship precisely because they're unseen. Right? That's what these teachers are like. They don't initially stand out as troublemakers. Everybody's probably smiling during the members meeting when they get voted in. Nobody notices anything, but they're coming in by stealth. And it's much easier to spot people who hate Christianity and who are openly antagonistic. A lot of times that's not the biggest threat. Our defenses quickly go up when we hear that. But these people crept in unnoticed. Okay, so that's the first thing to note about false teachers. They're not wearing signs that say, hi, I'm a false teacher. Welcome to Philadelphia Baptist Church. Right? Oh, that that were so. So the first thing, their stealth. Look at the second thing here, their destiny. Their destiny. In verse 4, Jude said that they were designated for condemnation. Designated for condemnation. And in case this sounds like hyperbole, Jude provides multiple examples from the Old Testament. I don't know if you noticed that while I was reading. This is just full of Old Testament examples of those who sinned and of the Lord's judgment. Look in verses 5 through 7. He mentions the children of Israel in verse 5. Those who rebelled in the wilderness. God had saved them out of Egypt. In a sense, they had experienced His grace. But you'll remember, there were some who rebelled and they ended up being destroyed. He also mentions in verse 6, the angels who rebelled. Hey, we don't have time to dig into this now. Probably a reference to Genesis 6, an unusual story where we read that angels left their place of service and engaged in sexual immorality with men. As punishment, it says God imprisoned them until the day of judgment. Then in verse 7, a story we're probably more familiar with, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says they're an example too. If you don't believe me, Look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah when they rebelled against God and indulged in immorality. Right? In each of these cases, the Lord punished those who rebelled for their sinful desires, which means these false teachers shouldn't think they're going to get away with their sin. Think what, a, think what an incentive this would have been to the church members hearing this who might have been tempted to follow them. I mean, after all, this false teaching sounds pretty good. You can have God's grace and you can live how you want to. But Jude says you need to see where they're headed. They're on a path to destruction. This is not a minor difference here over a verse here or there that's hard to interpret. These people are headed straight for God's judgment if nothing changes in their lives. Surprisingly, I don't know if if this caught your attention. Did you notice in verse 5 who it was who destroyed the Israelites who did not believe? He says it was Jesus. I mean, at this point, we would expect him to say God or the Lord. Right? It's tough to tell, actually, in the original manuscripts which it is here. But even if it's Jesus, I mean... This, this shouldn't be a big deal. Everything God does, He does through His Son. 
Of course, Jesus wasn't incarnate at that point in the story, but it's not as if he didn't exist as the eternal son of God. So in a very real sense, Jesus was dealing with Israel at this point. Right? So that shouldn't hold us up. Point, though, is the same. The false teachers were walking down the broad road that leads to hell and the church needed to stop following them. That's the second thing to know about these false teachers is their destiny. Third, we need to see their authority. Right? This, we may even term this better, their lack of authority. Look at verse 8 here. Jude says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their what? Dreams. Right? They were basing their sinful lifestyle on dreams. Instead of relying on God's word and scripture, they claim to be getting direction from elsewhere. This is so common for false teachers, even in our day. They want to have authority for what they're teaching, but the authority is often some private experience or revelation they've had. Something you can't verify or deny conveniently. You'll hear phrases like, the Spirit told me this. The Lord gave me this vision. Right? And it sounds so deep and so profound and so spiritual. But you can't verify it. And this is so different from the kind of teaching we read about in other parts of the New Testament where Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. That's what you're to preach. You're not preaching your dreams or opinions or your own thoughts. It says, Timothy, preach the word. We're never told to expect some private dream or vision or revelation. Did God do that in Scripture? Absolutely. He did it in profound ways. But he never told us to expect that. Those are unusual things. We have the faith that now has been once for all delivered to the saints and it is sufficient. Only God's word is sufficient to save us and to keep us to the end. So that's the third thing. Their authority or lack thereof. Number four, their arrogance. Their arrogance. Hey, this makes sense in light of the the previous one. If you're going to rely on your own private dreams and visions and experiences, right, you've got to think pretty highly of yourself if you're going to replace God's word with those things. Jude calls them in verse 16, loud mouth boasters. And in in verse 8, notice how this arrogance is manifested in these false teachers. He says they, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, when it says they reject authority, it's likely talking about the Lord's authority there. But when he says blaspheme the glorious ones, this is likely a reference to angels, probably fallen angels, those who had rebelled along with Satan. They were not given a lot of details. We don't know why they would have been doing this. But they were apparently openly defying these angels. You might be wondering, why would Jude point this out? I mean, why is that such a big deal? Angels aren't divine. Well, no, they're not divine. But when you consider the power and authority that God assigned to angels, this just points out the arrogance of these false teachers. Even even if we're dealing with fallen angels, what we refer to sometimes as demons, we need to recognize that in our own strength, we are out of our league. We can't handle them on our own. No one can match the power of Satan and his demons in and of themselves. We are completely dependent on the Lord in this spiritual battle. We don't run around shooting off our mouths as if we're strong enough To defeat Satan. Notice in verse 9. It says even the archangel Michael. Didn't pronounce judgment on the devil. Instead he said the Lord rebuke you. Even the angel Michael. Who Daniel tells us. Was over Israel. He didn't even pronounce a blasphemous judgment on them. Do you see the arrogance of these teachers. Strutting around as if the whole universe. Is cowering before them. Daniel doesn't actually mention this conversation between Michael and the devil. Jude is likely drawing here from another Jewish writing that was not a part of Scripture. And he does this in another place. Let me just say, for some Christians, this is worrying because they think, well, does that mean these other books are part of the Bible? 
will know just because a, a writer of Scripture quotes something like this doesn't mean that that book is in the Bible. Think about this. In Acts 17, Paul quotes uh, a Greek poet. He's not saying that this guy's inspired or his writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says this guy's actually, he's actually touching on something true and I'm going to show you that it's true. And again, all truth is God's truth. If other people happen to grasp a part of it, then the scripture writer sometimes will point it out. In this case, Jude says in blaspheming these fallen angels, these false teachers were doing something not even good angels would dare to do. We talk about presumption. This just points to the arrogance of these false teachers. That's the fourth thing, their arrogance. Fifth, their conduct. Their conduct. Now I realize a lot of these overlap. I mean, there's heavy overlap in all of these. In some ways, most of what we've seen already speaks to their conduct. But it's hard to miss Jude's emphasis, even using that word ungodliness. He, he mentions also, did you notice that they've walked in the way of Cain? I don't think he means by that they're going around murdering people, right? You're familiar with Cain and Abel. Cain being like one of the, the first sinners that we read about in Scripture. I think that's why he's mentioned here as he's kind of like he and Adam are kind of like the prototype for people who come after them. They hate the way of righteousness. They choose the way of sin. So they've walked in the way of Cain. And, and one of the specific aspects of their conduct that Jude alludes to, and I've mentioned it already, is their sexual immorality. Look at verse 4. It says their sensuality. That's probably a reference to that. Verse 8 says they defile the flesh. Again, very likely a reference to that. Apparently they were justifying this kind of behavior by relying on dreams or visions or something else. Sadly, this shows up today in false teachers. Again, not all of them. Doesn't mean we can slander everyone that we don't agree with or give them this label. But this is something to be on guard against for those who would undermine Scripture's teaching on this topic. Our culture might have changed its views, but God hasn't changed his design. Okay, there's so much more we could say here, but on the whole, we could characterize the conduct of these false teachers as ungodly. Did you notice that in verses 14 and 15, where again he's quoting from a, another book that would have been written between the Old and New Testaments? Again, not because it's Scripture, because it's pointing out something that's true, namely, the Lord is coming to judge the ungodly. That's his point. He keeps using that word ungodly and ungodliness over and over. Okay, he, Jude wants his readers to know these false teachers would be punished for their ungodliness. Number six, we need to notice their motives. Their motives. Right? It wasn't as if these false teachers had good intentions but then just stumbled along the way with the sin here, there. I mean, we all struggle with sin in various ways, don't we? I mean, all of us have things that, sins that we're trying to put away, that we have to even enlist the help of others to pray for us and to keep us accountable. That's true of every Christian. But these false teachers were not coming in sincerely struggling with sin. Verse 11 says, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Do you notice that? For the sake of gain. They're doing it for their own personal advantage. You may remember Balaam from the book of Numbers. He was willing to prophesy for financial gain. Verse 12 calls them shepherds feeding themselves. That's what they're in this for, themselves. Right? They may tell you that they're looking out for you, but they're really just shepherds feeding themselves. Verse 16, they're showing favoritism to gain advantage. Probably financial advantage in a lot of cases. And I mean, this, this hasn't really changed in our day, has it? I mean, it's not hard to think of all the versions of the prosperity gospel that we're familiar with. Teachers and leaders and the church who take advantage of God's people in order to make money. This is one of the things I remember on our trip to Uganda. 
I think it was Pastor Raphael who told us about a certain area where uh, evangelists would come through. and There would be an event or a conference over a weekend. And people, he said, would be lined up to get in here. And these are people who didn't have any means. They, they weren't rich. It's not just a lot of disposable income. Sometimes they would bring animals, right, just to trade, to get in. Just to hear these people promise healing or prosperity or some other blessings. Right? This is prevalent throughout the world today and it's prevalent in our own country just in different forms. Right? If you'll buy my book, if you'll send in money, I'll promise you this, things will get better for you. The book of Jude serves as a warning here. We should be on guard against those who are using the ministry of the gospel for financial and personal gain. Doesn't mean that we don't uh, pay those who are working in the gospel ministry. Scripture clearly sets a precedent for that. But this is people who are doing it for the sole purpose of financial gain. They're fleecing the flock. We don't need to be naive or unaware of this. Their motives are impure. That's number six. Seven, we need to notice their discontent. Their discontent. Look at verse 16. These people, it says, are grumblers and malcontents. Like the children of Israel in the wilderness, they weren't satisfied with God and His will for them. Continually complaining. You can imagine they were quick to criticize others as well. Not the kind of people you want to be around. No fruit of the Spirit in them. It's fault-finding and grumbling. And then that leads to number eight, the final thing, their divisiveness. Their divisiveness. And this actually gets, excuse me, into the next section a little. When people twist God's word and try and introduce new teachings or improvements to the faith, they end up dividing God's people. They're always trying to win people to their side. Often this means they portray the church's teachings as lacking or outdated. Sometimes as Christians, those of us who hold to a sound orthodox view on Scripture, sometimes we can even start to think maybe we're the problem. Maybe we're being too rigid. It's possible at times we can not be loving in our presentation of the truth. That's certainly a problem. But Jude gives us a good reminder here. In verse 19, he says, these are the people who are causing divisions. They're the ones who are changing the faith that was handed down. The reason for the divisions is not because you've moved. It's because they've moved. All right, so... There it is, eight things, and you could probably add to this, but these are just eight things we need to keep on our radar if we want to contend for the faith. Eight things about these false teachers. Again, most false teachers won't have all eight things true of them at the same time. But these are things we've got to keep on the radar. In our, in our own day, false teachers come in new shapes and sizes. Their teachings get repackaged, renamed. Right, But it's the same old thing. I couldn't help but think of a phenomenon in our own day known as deconstruction. I don't know if that's a term you're familiar with. A number of people, some of them refer to themselves as ex-evangelicals, now claim to have deconstructed their faith. Many of these are well-known pastors and authors. Here's how one writer defines deconstruction. He said, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. And we should just say there are a variety of reasons people say they're deconstructing their faith. I read a, an article this week by a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler, and he pointed out several of those reasons in, a, uh, in this article. Some people experience genuine hurt in the church, and so, they gen, and so they deconstruct. We ought to be sensitive to that, right? We, we ought to walk alongside people like that and point them to the truths of God's Word, not encourage them in their deconstruction. 
Right? So that's, that's certainly one reason and we need to acknowledge that. Shouldn't dismiss it. Sometimes it's poor teaching that they've received. Right? Sometimes they're just following a trend. As he mentioned in this article, doubt now is hip. Right? There's a desire to fit in. But another reason he mentions is simply the desire to sin. Okay? Again, this is not true for everybody. We can't paint with too broad a brush here. But it's not a coincidence that some who begin questioning the faith and changing their views eventually give themselves over to the very sins that they claim to be wrestling with. It's hard not to think of the book of Jude here. But the dangerous thing about some of the people that I'm referring to here is that they sound so humble and well-meaning. They talk about being on a journey. I'm just asking questions, they'll say. Just authentically wrestling with Scripture here. Okay, again, we ought to be patient with those who doubt. Well, actually, Jude actually tells us to do that. But with those who are sowing seeds of doubt in others, we need to call it out. They'll say things like, I'm not saying the Bible's bad. I'm just wondering if maybe we haven't understood it rightly. I'm just asking questions. Right? But as Butler says in his article, he says, this isn't the case, though, with everyone. Sometimes the deconstructing and questioning are masking what's really going on. Some of these people just want to fit in with the culture or indulge in sin themselves. He quotes the old adage, what the heart wants, the mind justifies. I think he's exactly right. It's so deceptive, particularly in a culture like ours, where we prize words like love and tolerance and diversity. But we've twisted those in unbiblical ways. This is why we need to be grounded in the word and the faith that was delivered to us once and for all. We want to be loving. We want to extend the grace of the gospel to those who are struggling. But we shouldn't be naive or deceived about the fact that certain people are leading Christians astray. In the words of Jude, we must contend for the faith that we have received. This leads to the second main call in this book, beginning in verse 17. A call to persevere. A call to persevere. The final eight verses here. You know, it's possible to look at all the false teaching and the threats to our faith and become angry or anxious, discouraged, might even have to start to have doubts about maybe we're the ones in error with all of these people throwing out doubts. But thankfully, the book of Jude doesn't leave us here. It encourages us in this final section to persevere with faith and hope. We cannot spend all of our time, it's not spiritually healthy, just to look for the errors in others. We'll never persevere if all we're doing is heresy hunting. Again, that's not saying it's not important to guard the gospel, but that's not what we spend all our time doing. Right, and I think he gives us, I think this call breaks down here into four brief exhortations here in the final section. Okay, four exhortations for us to take to heart that Jude gives us. In light of the dangers of false teaching, in light of the worry maybe that we might fall away or become deceived, Jude gives us four exhortations. Verse 17, he says, first, remember that this was predicted. Remember that this was predicted. Verse 17, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you there would be scoffers. So don't be shocked when people defect from the faith. Right? Don't be discouraged. Yes, we grieve for them personally, but don't let it shake your faith. Jesus and his apostles said this would happen. Right? Second, Jude says to keep yourself in the love of God. Remember what you've been told and then keep yourself in the love of God. Okay, that may sound somewhat odd to us, the way Jude phrases it there. We don't normally think of keeping ourselves in the love of God. We think God is keeping me, and that's absolutely true. God is the one who's keeping us. We'll see that in the fourth exhortation. But one of the ways he keeps us is by exhorting us to keep walking the path to eternal life, 
Not to stray onto the broad road. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he gives us several ways to do this. Look at verses 20 and 21. These are encouraging words. Okay, A reminder, we're not only looking out at false teachers. We spend all our time doing that. We're going to shrivel up spiritually. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. You've received this faith, the message of the gospel. Now continue to grow in it. Don't become stagnant. If you want to persevere, if you want to contend for the faith, you've got to keep building on what you've received. You've got a firm foundation. Build on it. Next, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay, I don't think he's talking about speaking in tongues here or a special prayer language. He's simply talking about the, the, the kind of prayer that is dependent on God. This is the kind of prayer that should be a regular part of our lives, prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a good reminder. Again, we don't keep ourselves in the love of God in our own strength. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to pray in the Holy Spirit. No, we lean fully on God. Okay, the third way we keep ourselves in the love of God in these same verses, he says we're to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. All of that's wrapped up in keep yourselves in the love of God. And he's speaking here of Christ's second coming. He says, live expectantly for that day. Don't just look to gratify yourselves in the immediate with your sinful desires. Keep yourselves in the love of God by waiting for that day when Christ will return. And notice too, he says, we're waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in our own righteousness. It's in His mercy. Right? All of this, again, this is how you keep yourselves in the love of God. Build yourselves up in your faith. Continue growing spiritually. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep praying. Lean into God here. You don't go out and fight these battles with false teachers and false teaching in, false teaching in your own strength. Pray in the Holy Spirit. He says, and then do all this living, waiting for that final day. Our culture tells us, live for today, live it up. Scripture says, no, you wait for the day. Yes, live for God now, but our ultimate reward is not now. Those who live it up now will face His judgment on the last day. Those who wait for Him will experience His mercy on the last day. So that's the second exhortation. Then the third exhortation that I'm just classifying as because he gives several instructions here take care of one another isn't it easy when thing when we feel threatened in our faith whether it's a false teacher or maybe it's just something else some twist on the gospel that we're worried about or something in our culture we can tend to take an every man for himself type approach when things get dangerous we even start to get skeptical of everybody else but jude says don't do that Notice he says here, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. People are going to struggle with false teaching. Right? People are going to struggle with certain parts of Scripture and certain teachings. Right? We have sin, but Jude doesn't say, well, just throw them all out. Just play it safe, throw them all out. No, he says, for those who are doubting, have mercy on them. Remember that you're only where you are by the grace of God. Right? That should give us pause before we start labeling everybody. Have mercy on those who are genuinely doubting. This is not those who are leading everybody astray. This is people who are caught in the crossfire. Have mercy on those who doubt. But then notice too, he says there are other people who are a little further down the road. He says we're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. When you or I see someone just blatantly walking away from the gospel... It's an urgent matter. One of your ministries, one of my ministries here at PBC is to go after people who are straying from the gospel because we love them. And we don't want to see people openly or even in private reject the gospel. This is an act of love. Jude says, don't just leave them to themselves. Help them. Snatch them out of the fire. It's it's an urgent situation. 
And notice too at the end of verse 22, there's a third group he mentions. He says, some you have to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, you need to be careful with some of these people. You, we want to help them, but be careful that you're not entangled too in that lifestyle. In all these ways, we take care of one another. When you become a member at PBC, you're covenanting to take care of the people who are sitting in this room and the people who aren't here this morning. That's what we do for one another in light of false teaching. That's one way to not only persevere in the faith, but to contend for the faith. Okay, so that's the third thing. And then fourth and finally, and this is the most encouraging, rest in God's power to keep you. Verses 24 and 25. Strictly speaking, this isn't an exhortation. It's a, it's a doxology. You've heard us give this at the end of services often. This is one of my personal favorites in scripture. But the truth contained here should exhort us to rest in God's power. Jude says, now to him who is able. I love that. How many times do you feel like, I don't know if I can stick it out to the end? Right. Or maybe you're worried about being deceived, maybe, uh, or maybe it's just sin in your life. Maybe it's just di- the difficulties of life and you think, I don't know if I can make it. Well, here's the good news. He is able. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Okay, it doesn't mean you'll never sin once you become a Christian, at least not this side of heaven. To stumble here means to lose hold on the faith and to walk Walk away from it, to walk away from Christ's lordship and into sin. And it said, God is able to keep you from doing that. For people who are walking away, this is a good way to pray for them. Lord, would you keep them? Keep them from stumbling. This is a good way to pray just for one another regularly, even for those who don't seem to be struggling. Lord, would you keep them from stumbling? Would you keep them Trusting in the gospel. He says he'll present us on the last day blameless before his presence. He will take us all the way to glory. You can count on it. Notice too, it says he'll do it and we'll have great joy. We're not just going kicking and screaming. He said he'll present you blameless with great joy. God is ultimately keeping us for our joy. A joy that will be consummated when we see Christ in all his glory. Right? We persevere in the faith. We contend for the faith. Knowing that God has infinite joy in store for us. It's only fitting then that we close here with Jude's final words. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, how grateful we are that you are able to keep us from stumbling. That you're able to present us blameless before your throne with great joy. Would you help us by the power of your spirit to contend for the faith, to hold fast to the gospel, to live with expectancy for Christ's return. How we thank you for the faith that has been delivered to us. May we be faithful to pass it along to the next generation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.